welcome everybody, particularly those who understand cricket. Will all everybody else leave? Uh, first, an introduction, my own. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox, as you can see, of the IR department here, the LSE and co-director of ideas with uh, Arnie Westad, my partner in crime. I would like to welcome you all this evening to the fourth public lecture given by our distinguished speaker, Ramachandra Guha, Ram as he is known. Currently holds the Philip Ramon Chair here in History and International Affairs based in ideas at the LSE. We have loved having him with us. We hope he has so far enjoyed his stay and will continue to do so. Now given the title of the lecture this evening, I think my role is not so much to chair the lecture, but rather to umpire it. Previously, uh, Ram spoke on such non-controversial topics as India's wars and why India will not become a superpower. Tonight, things could really get hot. It always does when it comes to sport and the relationship between sport, national identity, and national prestige. Let's be honest, sport is never just about sport. It is about winning and losing, but without having to go to war. Come up to the Emirates sometime and you'll know what I mean. But as Ram would be the first to confess, nearly all sports in the world, including cricket, of course, were originally invented by the British. The trouble is that having invented so many sports, foreigners learn to play them so much better. <laughs> this is why the British or English, got to be careful there, rarely if ever win very much. A clear sign of the decline of the British Empire, if ever there was wine. Decline indeed. As Jeremy Paxman has recently reminded us in his book on the British Empire, sport was a central part of the imperial experience. But the supreme imperial sport, as Paxman notes, was always cricket. Not only did it make lads into chaps and chaps into men and men into gentlemen, it also prepared them for battle. As an 1868 guide to the game put it, we even think that fielding at square leg to a very hard-hitting batsman is no bad training for coolness in battle and facing the enemy cannon. I could go on, but I won't. Enough of me, enough of empire, enough of the British, can we all please give an LSE welcome to Ram Guha, who will speak on sport in the nation, interpreting Indian history. Thank you, Mick, for your sparkling and witty uh, and warm words of introduction. Thank you all for coming here. One of the nicest things about the LSE, as compared to some other institutions of edu higher education in this country, 
is that wearing a tie is wholly optional. <laughs> so you may ask why I'm wearing a tie today, which is the first and last day in my term as a Philip Romain professor that I shall be wearing a tie. Well, this tie, <clears throat> zero and it on it, folks, this tie belongs to the only club that will have me as a member. <laughs> and that club is the Friends Union Cricket Club Bangalore. <laughs> it's the only club that will have me as a member. <clears throat> it's been in the Bangalore First Division <laughs> for the last 40 years. I'm a notorious chauvinist of the Friends Union Cricket Club. When my home state Karnataka plays in the Ranji Trophy, I don't care if it wins or loses, so long as an FUCC member scores some runs. <laughs> when India plays, I don't care if India wins or loses, uh, so long as Dravid scores 100 and Kumble gets five wickets, I'm all right. <laughs> so that's why I'm wearing this tie today. This, the Australians have a term, uh, Mick and I belong to that quite large and complicated club. Or, 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 the term is cricket tragic. Mick, you're a cricket tragic. I am. Uh, Mick uh, sent me a series of triumphant emails before I assumed charge as the Philip Roma professor uh, because uh, India lost four test matches in a row in last summer in England. Well, a little later on, there was a one-day series between India and England in the subcontinent, and Mick's email suddenly dried up. Uh, because India won 5 nil. But anyway, I'm not a cricket chauvinist, I'm a club chauvinist. <laughs> My talk is on cricket, and it's going to answer the question posed by a wonderfully contrary remark by India's most contrary thinker, a man called Ashish Nandi, whom some young students in this room will know, who's an unclassifiable social scientist, who's written books on film, science, politics, Gandhi, and also a book on cricket, which starts with the puzzle. He says, cricket is an Indian game accidentally invented by the British. <laughs> contrary, to your claim, contrary to your claim, Mick, cricket is an Indian game accidentally invented by the British. So my talk is about how this British game was Indianized. How did we Indians become so fanatically obsessive about the game of cricket? And the answer to that, I'm going to provide with a few facts, a few facts, I'm a historian after all, a few quotations from old newspapers, which is also part of my historian's trade, and a few stories which you can take or leave. The f and I'm going to answer this question as to how a game invented in this country several hundred years ago, mostly a rural game, became the greatest popular passion of a country far to the east. And I'll answer it through a series of questions, I'll, uh, which I'll pose and then provide you some reflection on those questions. The first question, how did cricket first take root? Well, cricket was played in India by the British because they felt homesick. Uh, the great writer Nirat Chaudhary um, uh, says somewhere, that for the British abroad, I don't know whether January Paxman's reading extends to Nirat Chaudhary, but it should. Uh, but Nirat Chaudhary says somewhere, he says for the British abroad, um, 
It goes something like this. For British abroad, <coughs> rule was their wife and sport was their mistress. And the cricket, were, uh, cricket was part of this. So they felt homesick. You know, uh, if you were a colonial administrator, judge, army officer uh, working in India in a hot, damp, dusty, uh, uh, disease-ridden place, if you were meeting all kinds of strange-looking people at work in the courtroom, in the barracks, uh, in your magistrate's office, you needed a break from it. So you retreated on the weekends or in the evenings to your club. And those clubs are still there, dotted in parts of India, which were a, a kind of way in which the British could recreate their home experience. So they played billiards, they played tennis, they, played, they drank a lot. Uh, they sometimes didn't pay their bills in the Bangalore club in my hometown. There is still an unpaid bill from a certain Lieutenant W.S.L. Churchill, uh, <laughs> amounting to 13 rupees and 4 annas, dating to 1896. Churchill didn't play cricket, which is... Uh, not one of his appealing, shall we say, traits. He rather uh, preferred polo. But anyway, so they played cricket. And they started playing among themselves. And in the great Maidan in South Bombay, which some of you know, British soldiers used to play cricket. And curious Indians used to watch them play cricket. And the Indians who were most curious were the most westernized of Indians, who were the Parsis. The Parsis, in proportionate terms, have contributed more <clears throat> uh, to modern Indian history than any other community. They number 100,000 today, and they're declining. But they have produced, among others, some of India's greatest scientists. Think Homi Bhabha, who founded India's atomic program. Some of India's finest writers. Think uh, <coughs> uh, Rohinton Mistri. Uh, some of India's most influential in industrialists. Think the Tatas. Uh, some of India's greatest musicians. Think Zubin Mehta, the great conductor, whom I'm proud to stay, say still holds an Indian passport, and India's first cricketers. There was a time when no Indian cricket team was complete without the Parsi. Uh, and they were the most westernized of Indian communities. So when they watched these soldiers playing on the Bombay Maidan, a kind of strange and funny game, uh, to those of you who don't know cricket here, I suppose there are a few people from outside the Commonwealth, let me only say that, first, cricket is the most sophisticated game known to humankind. <laughs> Second, and to be more precise, baseball is a vulgar and debased form of cricket. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so, uh, so it's a game played between bat and ball. And the reason it's so much more sophisticated than baseball is that you can hit the ball to 300, 360 degrees of the ground, the bowler or the pitcher can use the air and the wicket uh, and the turf. So the Parsis, who were a very literate, sophisticated, cultured community, I mean, a community that produced Rohinton Mistri and Zubin Mehta and Homi Baba, was bound to be attracted to the game of cricket. So they'd not seen it before. So they saw these chaps batting, bowling, keeping wickets, and let, let's play. So they started playing. Now, once the Parsis started playing cricket, the first Parsi club was set up in 1848, and it was called the Oriental Cricket Club. Once they started playing cricket, this set in process a kind of competitive emulation. So after the Parsis, the Hindus pick, picked up cricket. After the Hindus, the Muslims of Bombay picked up cricket. And because cricket was <coughs> uh, originated on communal lines, 
first the Europeans, then the Parsis, then the Hindus, then the Muslims. Competitive cricket in India also was run for a very long time on communal or religious lines. Uh, the Parsis played cricket from the 1840s. They were an enterprising community. Uh, as early as 1886, they sent a Parsi team to tour England. Uh, some years later, in Bombay, they were granted the privilege of an annual match against the Europeans of the Bombay Presidency, known as the Presidency Match. Now, this starts in 1895, and it was played every year, and I'll come a little later to what happened when the Parsis won, but that's anticipating. <laughs> that's anticipating. Uh, so, in 1895, an annual match started. The first competitive match in India was played between the Parsis and the Europeans in Bombay. Well, the Hindus clamored for representation. And 12 years later, in 1907, the Hindus joined in. So this became a triangular tournament. Hindus, Parsis, <coughs> and the Europeans. In 1912, five years further on, this becomes a quadrangular tournament with the other great numerous Indian community, the Muslims added on. Now, India is so complicated and so diverse that even this did not exhaust uh, the communities in India. So in 1935, a fifth team was added on with the magnificent name of The Rest. <laughs> so you had, well, it wasn't actually, in its origins, uh, it isn't so funny. Because the reason you needed to have a rest was because of the racism of the British ruling elite. There, was a great, there were two great Christian cricketers. One was a batsman called Vijay Samuel Hazare, who much later became India's uh, first successful test captain. And the other was also a batsman from my hometown uh, of Bangalore called Paul Kanikam. Now, they were Christians, but they were not whites. They couldn't play for the Hindus. They couldn't play for uh, the Muslims. They couldn't play for the Parsis. And the British were not allowed to include, to redesignate their team, the Christians. So they said, we'll start a team of our own. And they added on the Sikhs, the Jews, and the Anglo-Indians, the Jews in India from uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. So this was the fifth team, the rest. Now, much like <coughs> uh, the quote from the book of 1868, which Mick read out to you, the British in India saw cricket as unifying. So in <coughs> 1903, a team of visiting Englishmen came to India came to visit India to play cricket. And it, uh, they were all Oxford men, so they wore ties, I suppose, not playing play cricket, but elsewhere. And uh, one of them, who was a historian called Cecil Hedlum, who, among other things, edited the works of the imperial proconsul Lord Minler, Cecil Hedlum wrote a book on that tour, and it had a wonderful 19th century title. It went something like this. 10,000 miles through India, hunting, shooting, fishing, and playing cricket in the year of the coronation Darbar. <laughs> and in this book, uh, the historian, Cecil Hedlum, placed cricket in its proper context <clears throat> as being among the last and most benign influences of imperial rule. So Hedlum said, first the hunter, the missionary, and the merchant. First the hunter, the missionary and the merchant, next the soldier and the politician, and then the cricketer. That is the history of British colonization. And of these civilizing influences, the last, namely the cricketer, may be said to do least harm. 
The hunter may exterminate species, and indeed he did. The missionary may cause quarrels, and indeed he did, and still does. <laughs> the soldier may hector, the politician blunder. But cricket unites, as in India, the rulers and the ruled. It provides a moral training and education in pluck and nerve and self-restraint far more valuable to the character of the ordinary native than the mere learning by heart of a play by Shakespeare or an essay of Macaulay. <laughs> so that's what cricket was supposed to do, provide training and nurture moral character. And so the British saw themselves as kind of promoting this game that cultivated, as Nick said, manly as well as gentlemanly values and virtues. Now the question was, the natives could play, and the rulers wanted them to play, but could they win? Now, early on, when the Indians first started playing cricket, this was not really a central or a troubling question for the rulers. So there's a report of a match uh, in about the 1880s, which was officers with umbrellas versus natives with bats. <laughs> so officers with umbrellas. So that's a kind of handicap that the, the, the generous sportsman-like British rulers gave the Indians. But then this started to change with the Parsis. In 1890, <coughs> a visiting English team, led by a county cricketer, was defeated by the Parsis. And the reports of that Parsi victory are quite phenomenal, because the Parsi press compared the victory on the cricket field in 1890 with a victory on the battlefield in the 7th century in Iran. It said, not since the Battle of Nahabad had the Parsi shown such pluck and courage and determination and so on. So, once the natives started winning, this posed problems for the theory and practice of colonialism. The Parsis won their first major match in 1890. In 1906, a Hindu team beat the Europeans for the first time. This match was played in Bombay, and Bombay, for a very long time, was the center of uh, Indian cricket. So this match was played in Bombay, and the news traveled up-country by telegraph and bush telegraph, and possibly by train, because there was a train that ran, the frontier mail that ran from Bombay right up to Peshawar. And two days after, three days after this match was played, and the Hindus won, the Tribune of Lahore in the Punjab ran an editorial comparing the Hindu victory over the Europeans in a cricket match uh, with the victory of Japan over Russia on the battlefield just 18 months previously. <laughs> likewise a victory, likewise a heroic, stupendous, history-defying victory of East versus West, of the Asiatic over the European. So very early on, from the late 19th century, cricket was seen in political and racial terms. <coughs> so by 1900 or so, Cricket was solidly established in the cities and towns of the Indian subcontinent. And you had tournaments like the Bombay Quadrangular being played in Karachi, in Sindh, in Nagpur, in the central provinces, in Calcutta, in Madras, and so on. Now, the second question I want to ask and answer is, <coughs> who was the first great Indian cricketer? Uh, now, there's a common answer to this. The first in great Indian cricketer <coughs> was a batsman called Kumar Sri Ranjit Singhji, who came from Cambridge and played cricket uh, for England. And as it happens in our audience today, are two outstanding batsmen from Cambridge who also played cricket for England. And uh, so Ranjit started that kind of tradition. 
And Raji was a prince. Uh, he, it is said that because of the color of his skin, he was not given a chance for two years. So he played, when in Cambridge, for the first two years, he played uh, on Parker's Piece, which is his big ground uh, in the middle of the city. And it is said that he played pick-up cricket, and in one day, he scored three centuries. He scored 100, went to the next match, and so on. And word of his prowess got round, and a very great England cricketer, who was then captain of Cambridge, called F.S. Jackson, gave him a chance uh, in the varsity match. And uh, then he played for England, got 100 in his first uh, test match, played in Manchester, and then became a, you know, broke many county records. And he invented the leg glance. You know, it's a very delicate, lovely shot, since played quite beautifully by, among others, Mohammad Azaruddin and Satin Tendulkar. But he invented that. And it, is said, it was said by a Yorkshire bowler, who bowled two days to Ranji and could not get him out. He said he never played a Christian stroke in his life. <laughs> so uh, that was Ranji. All right. Now, uh, so it's Ranji had a, a nephew called Tulip, also from Cambridge, also scored 100 on test debut. And it's commonly believed that Ranji was the first great Indian cricketer. But that belief is mistaken. Because Ranji was an English cricketer, despite not ever having played a Christian stroke in his life, he refused to play for Indian teams. Uh, in about 1905-1906, there was a proposal to send an all-India team to tour England with Ranji as captain. And Ranji refused. He said, no, I will only play for Sussex. Uh, and the MCC and England. Many years later, when his nephew Dulip <coughs> was uh, a top-class cricketer, the first Indian cricket team played an official test match toward England in 1932. And there was a proposal to make Dulip the captain of the team, and Ranji said, no, Dulip is an English cricketer, like me. He will not play for, 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 for India. And there were various reasons for this. The sympathetic explanation would be and Ranji was grateful for the break given him by F.S. Jackson in Cambridge and so on. The unsympathetic explanation would be that the Indian Maharajas were the most craven toadies of the Raj. Mm. Uh, but anyway, so he was a great batsman. Having said this, he was a, a wonderful batsman. But he was not an Indian cricketer. He was an English cricketer. The first great Indian cricketer was actually not a prince, but someone who came from the very bottom of the social hierarchy. He was an untouchable of what we would now call a Dalit. And I'd like to introduce uh, you to his story this evening, because it's a compelling story, and it's the reason I myself got interested in the social history of cricket. This man was called Palwankar Balu. <coughs> he was born in 1875 in the town of Dharwad, which is in, <coughs> on, uh, in kind of southwestern India, in between Bangalore and Bombay, as you go up the train line. He was born in Dharwad. <coughs> Uh, his father worked in an ammunition factory uh, because low caste Hindus, upper caste Hindus would not work in an ammunition factory because bullets required uh, the products of animals and which were regarded as, as polluting. So Balu's father works in an ammunition factory, gets a job in Kirki near Pune where there's a big army cantonment till this day and Balu gets a job as the groundsman in the Pune club, which is an all-white <coughs> all club. Uh, but you needed natives to roll, roll the wicket, lay out the kind of, you know, uh, crease and so on. And Balu gets a job there as a groundsman and then starts playing cricket and starts bowling in the nets. He's a left-arm spinner. And he, you see, uh, historically in England, <coughs> in fact all over the world, 
batsmen are the game's aristocrats and bowlers the world's kind of working class so there was a captain called good batsman called greg who was a county cricketer from hampshire and he wanted batting practice so he would get balu to bowl to him for you know hours at end and say if you get me out i'll give you eight runs half a rupee so balu started bowling and made i suppose made enough money to keep his home warm in the winters uh but he never batted in the pune club but word of his prowess as a bowler reached the other side of the city the pune Uh, the native quarters of pune where indian cricketers had started playing so balu was recruited to play for the pune team and took so many wickets <coughs> that he then moved that he then moved to uh bombay where this big tournament was played became a hero of the hindu team uh in the quadrangular won them many matches the 1906 match that i mentioned was won basically basically because of balu's bowling toured england in 1911 Uh, as part of the first uh, uh, all india team to play first class cricket in india got 150 wickets uh, in on that tour was offered county contracts but clearly at that stage it was impossible for him uh, to take them so the, he was really an outstanding bowler if you look at his record uh, descriptions of his bowling but he was uh, from the lowest caste although he was the finest bowler produced by the hindus although he won them many matches against the muslims the parsis and the europeans balu was never appointed captain of the hindu cricket team and there was a double uh, bias here usually bowlers are not appointed captains of teams and uh, uh, and also he was a dalit or uh, an untouchable and many years ago i was looking at an old newspaper <coughs> and i found a, a clipping where the captain of the hindu team who was a brahmin uh, was being felicitated or being on his uh, uh, elevation as skipper and in response to this felicitation he said while he was grateful for the honor it was not him but his colleague mr balu who should have been captain of the team and much was left unsaid in those words now i seized upon those words in that old microfilm because i have never before heard the captain of any international sporting team say somebody else should have been captain in his place and clearly there was something else at work and then i discovered it was because of caste prejudice that because the men who ran hindu cricket in india were brahmins and baniyas from the upper caste they could not abide the idea of a dalit being captain because a captain in a cricket team uses his brains far more than a captain in a football or or hockey team because you know uh, it's a slow paced game you have to set the field you have to organize the batting order you have to select the team and so on uh, and the caste hierarchy in which mental labor is performed by the brahmins and menial labor by the dalits would be upturned if a great dalit was appointed captain uh, of the team so although he was such a great bowler <coughs> he was never appointed captain now this changed this changed because mahatma gandhi comes back from south africa in 1915 and when he comes back and assumes charge of the indian indian freedom struggle gandhi says <coughs> that unless we abolish untouchability we are not really qualified or capable of exercising our political rights that the practice of caste the discrimination is the lowest caste essentially delegitimizes our claim to win political freedom from the british now by this time balu was quite old but balu's younger brother palwankar vithal uh, had 
emerged as a very fine batsman in his own right. And Vithal and a third brother called Shivaram uh, also played for the Hindus. In 1920, in Balu's last year in first class cricket, M.D. Pai, who was the old captain of the Hindus and a Brahmin, fell ill. Now, Balu should have been really chosen as captain, but since it was impossible for a Brahmin to be awarded that, uh, for a Dalit to be awarded that post, another Brahmin called D.B. Devdar from Pune was chosen. At this, Balu's two brothers, Vithal and Shivaram, went on strike. And they said, we will not play for the Hindus. And they issued a very dignified statement which said, this is because in a sport, social considerations of social status should not enter into it. And this is discrimination on caste. Our brother, who is the best player, the most experienced, the wisest player, has not been chosen captain. So we will go on strike. When they went on strike, the Gandhians of Bombay started a public subscription for them. Because by then, the Gandhi, by the way, this, is, this story is quite interesting for a number of reasons. One reason is, is that it shows how uh, politics can impact the cricket field. But also because Gandhi himself was profoundly indifferent to cricket. You know, the two great popular passions of India are film and cricket. Gandhi watched one film in his life. But many films have been made about him. Gandhi, uh, to my knowledge, never watched or played cricket. Yet, his concern for the abolition of untouchability was to profoundly impact the history of cricket in India. So these young, uh, these brothers of Balu go on strike. They refuse to play because Balu, their brother, was not chosen as captain. A public subscription is started uh, for them. The authorities disregard, as often happens, the management doesn't, kicks out the strikers. They dropped from the team that year and the next year. The Hindus lose by an innings both years. In 1923, uh, Vithal and Shivaram are reinstated. Vithal is made captain, partly because of uh, the influence of the Gandhian uh, freedom struggle and its abolition to untouchability, and partly also because unlike his brother, he was a batsman and not a bowler. <laughs> but he is made captain. And in the finals of the quadrangular tournament played in Bombay in 1923 against the Europeans, Vittal scores an unbeaten 100. So it's like, it's, you know, it's, it's really an epic story which ends in this kind of glorious finale where Vittal scores 100. Uh, he hits the winning runs. He's chaired off the field by upper caste Hindus shouting Mahatma Gandhi ki jai, glory to Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> now it's an extraordinary story and it doesn't end there. Balu becomes a close associate of Mahatma Gandhi when Gandhi in 1932 <coughs> goes on a fast against untouchability. Balu is at hand in Pune attending on him. Now Balu <coughs> was a truly great uh, cricketer but also a very considerable public figure. He was the first spokesman of the untouchable caste from Western India. In some ways and since I made a remark about baseball, uh, I should bring in uh, baseball in a kind of more, uh, less humorous and more substantial context. Balu was a precursor of Jackie Robinson. <laughs> Jackie Robinson was the first black man to play major league baseball. And he broke a social taboo that unleashed deeper political and social forces that fed into the civil rights movement and at some remove, some distant remove, created the conditions that allowed Barack Obama to become president of the United States. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating here. I mean, at some level, what Jackie Robinson did, did contribute to uh, what we are seeing in the US today. And Balu was a Jackie Robinson-like figure. 
uh, and he was once recognized as such. In 1959, <coughs> a famous Pune publisher issued a series of books on great men in the world. This is 1959, before the feminist movement, so it was still called Great Men of the World. Uh, but in this series, there were books on, there were 40 books, 40 role models, 20 Indians, 20 foreigners. 20 Indians, 20 foreigners. And those who had books to themselves included Spartacus of Rome, Michelangelo, Benjamin Franklin, Captain Cook, Lawrence of Arabia, Ferdinand Lesseps, the builder of uh, uh, the Suez Canal, and finally, moving from the heroic to the pragmatic, a study of the founder of the supermarket, Mr. Woolworth. <laughs> now, in this list of 40, there was a booklet on Palwankar Balu. I mean, the Indians were, you know, Gandhi and Tagore and Nehru, along with Spartacus and Michelangelo and Lesseps and Woolworth, and one of the 40 was Palwankar Balu. Now, that's how significant he was once thought of. But yet today he was forgotten. Uh, till I wrote about him some years ago, he had been forgotten. He had been airbrushed from history. And there are several reasons for this. Uh, reasons for the fact that the first great Indian cricketer, the precursor of Anil Kumble, Rahul Dravid, Sachin Tendulkar, Kapil Dev et al., was airbrushed from history. One was that historians don't write about sport. Uh, historians are not members of cricket clubs, in other words. <coughs> uh, a second reason is that Balu, uh, was succeeded in the public imagination by an even greater Dalit reader called B.R. Ambedkar, who in 1948-49-50, as the first law minister of independent India, helped write the Indian constitution. I have referred to B.R. Ambedkar in an earlier Roman lecture because he was, had a DSC from the London School of Economics. But I found, to my uh, surprise and pleasure and kind of bewilderment, that B.R. Ambedkar was a great admirer of Palwankar Balu. When in 1911, Balu returns from England, having taken 150 wickets, B.R. Ambedkar, who's then a promising bright young student in Wilson College in Bombay, presents a token of appreciation to him. <coughs> in the 1920s, as a young activist, B.R. Ambedkar launches a campaign to have Balu nominated to the Bombay municipality. But in the 1930s, their paths diverge because Balu stays with the Congress and B.R. Ambedkar decides to become a political rival of the Congress. In 1937, in the first uh, substantial elections held on Indian soil, Balu was chosen by the Congress to oppose B.R. Ambedkar. And Balu clearly uh, did this with some reluctance. I mean, he was a loyal follower of Mahatma Gandhi and a long-time member of the Congress party, so he agreed. But he said in his speeches, he said, Dr. Ambedkar is the most educated man produced by our community. And I'm standing against him only because my party has told me to. So there was this very interesting dynamic and tension between Balu and Ambedkar. Balu was Ambedkar's first hero. But Ambedkar surpassed him politically, in, in, the, in the imagination of the uh, Dalit public. So because of this, uh, Balu has been kind of erased from sporting as well as uh, political history. But Balu was the first great Indian cricketer and also the first political figure of some significance to emerge from the Dalit community of Western India. The next question I want to, <coughs> to uh, ask is, when does cricket become a mass sport? <coughs> By the 1920s, <coughs> cricket is played all over India. 
the Bombay Quadrangular is followed on radio all across the subcontinent. Uh, there was a Parsi commentator, appropriately, called AFS Talyar Khan, who commented <coughs> non-stop for five days in every match. Fortunately, this is cricket and not soccer, and when a wicket <laughs> fell or there was a drinks break, he could go and you know, uh, answer the call of nature. Otherwise, it would have been impossible for him to do this. But he was the only commentator. And all across India in the 30s and 40s, the game was followed uh, in college quadrangles, in hostels, in offices. Uh, and, the, uh, <coughs> and this tournament became really a vehicle for the spread of cricket. You know, the first uh, uh, mass sporting heroes were nurtured by the Bombay Quadrangular. There was a man called C.K. Naidu, who was an incredibly handsome man. And there's a photo of him cradling a lion cub outside the London Zoo. Uh, he was a man of you know, great character and charisma, and he was a batsman who hit sixes. When the first MCC team took toward uh, uh, India in 1926-27, CK Naidu hit 13 sixes against them. And the next day's Times of India, uh, this is, you know, those of you who know Bombay, this match was played in the Bombay Gymkhana. And about 150 yards from the Bombay Gymkhana is the great clock tower uh, of the city. And there was a cartoon in next day, the next day's Times of India with a man cowering behind the clock tower saying, CK, please don't hit us. <laughs> uh, but he was, as a result of this hundred, he was given uh, a reception by the textile workers of Bombay. And at that reception, this man who had hit 13 sixes against the conqueror was presented <coughs> with a gold watch and a motorcycle with a sidecar raised by public subscription by textile workers. Now, I tell this story because it's sometimes mistakenly believed that cricket was an elite game in India. It was played by Maharajas and aristocrats and civil servants. Not true. From very early on, the working class in the cities followed it. <coughs> so the 20s and 30s, through the Bombay quadrangular and pentangular, Cricket becomes a mass sport. It edges out the competition. So the other British sports that uh, Mick talked about, like football and hockey. Hockey is still quite popular, but football, athletics, billiards, and so on are kind of edged out. And cricket becomes the most popular sport in India. At this stage, Gandhi comes in again. Gandhi, whose mind had been occupied with the salt march, the round table conference, spinning, weaving, prohibition, and so on. Suddenly, in the early 40s, his attention is directed to the Bombay cricket tournament and the fact that it is played on religious lines. Now at this stage, the late 30s and early 40s, there was a growing polarization between Hindus and Muslims. This polarization was social, it was sometimes violent, there were communal clashes, and it was political. The Muslim League, led by the brilliant lawyer Muhammad Ali Jinnah, had launched a campaign for a separate nation of Pakistan. By the time of the Second World War, 1939, it was clear that the British would leave India sooner rather than later. But the question was, would they leave behind a united country or a divided one? Now, Gandhi, as a great advocate of Hindu-Muslim harmony, obviously wanted a united India. But Jinnah believed that religious minorities would be oppressed by Hindus in a united state. So he held out for a separate Muslim homeland of Pakistan. And this was also the time, the late 30s and the early 40s, that the Muslim cricketers began actually taking on the Hindus. So there's a kind of sequential process of emulation, where first the Parsis beat the Europeans, 
Then the Hindus start beating the Parsis and the Europeans. And by the late 30s and early 40s, you have some outstanding Muslim cricketers. And the matches between Hindus and Muslims are bitterly fought. And even. And this is drawn to Gandhi's attention that, look, you know, uh, this is leading to sport is not promoting goodwill. It's promoting discord and disharmony. If the major sporting tournament of India has a team which is called Hindus and a team that is called Muslims, does this, does this not pave the way, legitimize the creation of two separate nations, a Hindu nation and a Muslim nation? So Gandhi gets into the act, issues an edict, uh, saying that sport uh, should not be organized on communal lines, and the pentangular kind of slowly disappears into history. And by this time, it's replaced by a tournament run on provincial lines known as the Ranji Trophy. But <coughs> by 1947, or thereabouts, cricket was India's most popular sport. Since 1947, it has, its popularity has grown in leaps and bounds. <coughs> cricket is watched in town and country, by upper class and working class, by men and by women, and by young people, middle-aged people, and old people. India has at least, at last count, 600 million cricket fans, and hence 600 million putative selectors of the Indian national team. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Uh, the eloquence, the vehemence, the passion with which opinions are expressed. Uh, if you want a flavor, go to a website called ESPNCrickInfo.com and look at the comments. But that's only a flavor. What is communicated orally in, uh, in kitchens, drawing rooms, pubs, dhabas, and so on cannot be represented in polite conversation. <laughs> okay, uh, so I've spoken a little about how cricket came to India how cricket became Indians uh, a great popular passion. My next question, which is more or less uh, uh, my penultimate question, is why have Indians taken to cricket so? Why are Indians so obsessed with cricket? Well, I'm going to give you four reasons. <clears throat> the first reason uh, is that cricket is a game that can be played in an urban context. You know, Indian cities are very densely built. They're not really open spaces. You need an open place to play football. I mean, you need a, you can't play cricket in the old, uh, you can't play football in the old theater. But you can comfortably play cricket. You can play cricket in my office, in the corridor of LSE Ideas, you can play cricket. Because cr cricket is an up and down game, you know, traditionally. Uh, so, in those narrow streets and gullies of Mumbai and Kolkata and Kanpur, you can play cricket. There are no open spaces, you can't play football. Uh, you, they, uh, it's a poor country, so you can't afford good tennis courts, except for the real elite. So cricket is the one game whose elements, how to bowl straight, how to bat straight, uh, can be learnt in any crowded tenement uh, uh, in any large Indian city. So that's reason number one. Reason number two <coughs> is that physique is not, not important. You can be short, fat, overweight, and a great cricketer. And India's finest ever off-spinner, Arapali Prasanna, is tribute to this. Uh, and you know, Indian cricketers are still desperately unfit, but all you need is this work. All you need is this work. You know, to bowl a leg break, or bowl off break, to play a leg glide, all right. Now, so that's like reason number two. And that's true, incidentally, of baseball too. I mean, I, I, despite what I've said, I actually like baseball. And one of the things I like about baseball is a character called the sinker ball pitcher. If you see the sinker ball pitcher, because he has to sink the ball, he always has a large one. 
you know, he's short and fat, completely uh, unathletic, but he couldn't play any other sport. And I think cricket uh, and baseball are democratizing in that they don't need super athletes. I mean, I myself, uh, I'm the most unfit person on earth. You know, I'm an asthmatic, I have back problems, I can't run, I run 100 meters in 40 seconds when I was 16. I'm not talking about now, when I was 16, I ran 100 meters <laughs> in 40 seconds. But yet I could play decent, I could ball it off break, so I played for my college team. So that's reason number two. Indians are the most physically unathletic and unfit people in the world, but it doesn't matter <laughs> when you play cricket. Reason number three, which is actually much more, the most important reason why Indians play cricket, or love cricket, is that the structure of the sport <coughs> is slow and interrupted. You know, you bowl a ball, then you walk back to your run. You bowl another ball, <laughs> then you finish it over, then the guy stains. Then a wicket falls, then you kind of hang around. <laughs> then these things break, right? Now, what this means, unlike, unlike tennis, I mean, when you think of uh, Nadal playing Federer, just think of Nadal and Federer were playing in the Netaji Subhash uh, Indoor Stadium in Kolkata, which can seat 40,000 people. And where I once saw Lendl play at the Lacan, it was a good match. It was not Nadal Federer, but good enough. All you can do is. <laughs> right. Now, on the other hand, if India is playing England in the Eden Gardens at the 80,000 people, you can converse, you can chat. Indians are the most sociable, gossipy, participatory people. <laughs> you can engage with cricketers. There's a guy at fine leg whom you can chat to. You can observe cricketers. You can see how they react when wickets fall. So that, you know, cricket a, cricketer A is selfish because he never co congratulates the bowler. You know, there's a particular bond between Sachin Tendulkar and some other Bombay cricketer because you can see the, how much they chat. Now, so cricket is, because it's slow and interrupted, and also because traditionally with test cricket, you have these breaks. Not only do you bowl a ball, another ball over wicket, uh, drinks break, tea break, lunch break, but at 5 p.m. you stop and start at 10 a.m. the next day. <laughs> now, if you think of, <coughs> you know, our epics, they go on and on and on and on and on. You know, there's always something to discuss, chat, reflect backwards, forwards, sideways, under, underground, over the ground. So it's a participatory and social uh, kind of uh, uh, a game. And that's, I think, <coughs> a very important reason why Indians love cricket. So there's the urban context. There's the fact that physique is not critical. There's the structure of the game, that it's slow and interrupted. And finally, there's nationalism. It's the only game at which we are any good. <laughs> we are a nation of a billion people. And in the last four Olympic Games, we have won one bronze and one gold medal. <laughs> but till recently, we had the greatest batsman in the world. Uh, there was a time when Indians held the batting and the bowling test record, Sunil Gavaskar and Kapil Dev. Uh, it's the game at which we can settle scores with the English, our former conquerors. Uh, so I think nationalism is very important. It's the only game at which we're any good. And sometimes it's hyper-nationalism. I'll tell you a story, the ugly part of nationalism. And I'll tell you a personal story. This goes back to the 1996 World Cup, <coughs> uh, which was played against the backdrop of an insurgency in Kashmir, Hindu-Muslim violence, a million Pakistani and Indian troops facing each other uh, across the border, and India was playing Pakistan in my hometown, Bangalore. And it was a desperately close fought match. And it went down almost to the wire, it was a 50-50 match, and in about the 43rd over, the great Javed Miandad was run out. Uh, and then, only then could Indians think that they would win. So I was in the pavilion, <coughs> and Javed came back. Now Javed was then, uh, in 1996, Officially 38 years of age, 
unofficially probably 45 or thereabouts. Uh, he'd already announced uh, that this would be his last tournament. Now his team had lost. And he was a truly great cricketer. So he came back and you, know, you could see the kind of devastation and despair on his face. And had he really been 38 and not 45, he would have not been run out. Because he was a fantastic athlete. But he missed by about one inch. He missed just a single by about one inch. His legs couldn't carry him. So he came towards the pavilion. And I could see all of this. And I got up and started clapping. And uh, a guy behind me said, sit down. Why are you clapping that bastard? <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, you should be clapping too. He's a truly great player. And this is his last match. And he said, thank God I'll never see that bastard again. Because Javed was famous, among other things, for hitting a last ball six in Sharjah against India. And he won many matches against India, and he was a fantastic player. And um, uh, I would actually, those of you interested in cricket and cricket literature, I'd urge you to read <coughs> his autobiography, uh, which is uh, partly about his rivalry with Imran Khan. And I must say, to me, he's, he's a considerable character. Imran gets all the publicity in this country for various reasons. Javed never went to Oxford, for example. Uh, but he was easily as great a cricketer. So this is the kind of hyper-nationalism uh, that is the kind of ugly side of the fact that it's only at cricket, sometimes, episodically, once in five years, that we can win a match or a tournament. And we can never do so in any other sport. So <coughs> I've uh, told you the story of um, how cricket got absorbed in India and how it is deeply interwoven at every stage with the social and political and cultural history of India. It's linked with race, caste, religion, and nationalism. I'll just say a last word about the market. Now, one major change in cricket over the last uh, six or eight years is a tournament, like all good sporting inventions, invented in this country but made famous elsewhere, uh, 2020 cricket, the Indian Premier League. <coughs> uh, I have a kind of, uh, I detest 2020 cricket, I should be upfront about it, because whatever, you know, I'm a classicist. And uh, the three forms of cricket, test cricket, 50-50 and 20-20. So test cricket is five days, 50-50 is about nine and a half hours, 20-20 is perfectly positioned for the Indian upper middle class. It's two hours, it can be played between seven and nine. You clock off from work, sit down with a cigarette and a glass of whiskey, watch the match, and that's it. Now, in cricketing terms, <coughs> I compare test cricket to single malt whiskey. 50-50 <laughs> cricket to what's called Indian-made foreign liquor. Cobra beer, shall we say. <laughs> Cobra beer. All right. And 2020 is the local hooch down the road. <laughs> now, and this is not just simply a facetious comparison. Because when you watch a test match, like when you have a really high-quality single malt, you can remember, you can remember the runs, the wickets, the spells, the ebb and flow, every sip. When you watch, when you drink Cobra beer, you still feel quite pleasant the next day. When you have the local hooch, all you remember is I got smashed last night. <laughs> so that's really uh, what it is uh, from <clears throat> the point of view of the lover of cricket aesthetics. Uh, when I made this analogy, uh, a British economist who uh, helped uh, organized the Indian Premier League, came to visit me in Bangalore and said he read my article disparaging IPL and could I meet him for lunch. So, uh, you know, we met for lunch and he was carrying a bottle of single malt as a placatory gift from, from, from Scotland. Now, the funny thing is I actually don't drink. Uh, 
but still i think that kind of analogy works <laughs> but uh, 2020 st karo <laughs> i know it off a second hand or what happens right now okay. um and i think 2020 uh, is caught on i hope it fails uh it's a vehicle for the vanity and uh, self regard of india's upper class you know it's uh, and I, let me say no more uh it's also very bad for indian cricket those of you who are indians in this room and want to understand why india lost 4-0 to england last summer in the test series and lost 4-0 to australia more recently is because chaps and ladies remember you can either have the indian premier league or a good indian test team you can't have both so choose all right uh having uh, given you my polemical lecture let me <laughs> let me come in the end to uh i've two really a question that must be asked even in a talk that celebrates this wonderful creative sophisticated british game and how we indians have made it more wonderful more creative more sophisticated there's a question that must be asked and answered tentatively answered who are the indians who hate cricket they actually are some indians who hate cricket and some of them are my closest friends uh who are the indians who hate cricket there are basically three kinds of indians who hate cricket the first who have the most uh, legitimate grounds for disliking the game of cricket are those who play other sports particularly are hockey players you know india the only other sport in india was quite good was hockey until the europeans changed the rules <coughs> <laughs> and put astro turf instead of those bumpy surfaces on which our wrists work hell <laughs> right now it's all athleticism but in 1980 india won the olympic world uh, olympics uh, hockey in moscow in 1983 india won the cricket world cup now this is the time when satellite television took sport all across india and if in that 83 world cup final the great gordon greenwich had not misjudged a ball and been bowled off stump hockey might still have been the national sport of india but so uh, you have players of other sports especially hockey who dislike the obsessive interest in cricket the fact that patrons and patronage only come to cricket i, I respect that view the second kind of uh, cricket haters in india whom i have less time for are the economists <laughs> who calculate the impact on gnp of every match india played between may uh, played with india and pakistan and how many people absent themselves from work <laughs> and the third kind of uh, cricket haters in india uh are the anglophobe nationalists they not very many of them now though there are some people who think baseball will replace uh, cricket in india i mean the anglophobe nationalist has now become the uh, you know americophile nationalist but in the 40s and 50s <coughs> there was a very important strand in the indian political movement comprising those nationalists who unlike jawaharlal nehru had not been educated at harvard and cambridge at harrow and cambridge but had taken their degrees from the sorbonne or the university of hyderabad there was a man called bv keskar for example uh, who was a minister in our first cabinet who wrote an article in 1946 confidently predicting that when the british left cricket would also quit india with them there was an even more influential indian politician with whom i'm going to close my talk a man called ram manohar lohia who was had a degree a phd degree from the university of berlin and was a had to flee germany because of his position on the nazi party he comes back to india becomes a radical socialist and in the 50s and 60s uh 
becomes a bitter critic of the Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. And Loya had three obsessions. Jawaharlal Nehru, the English language, and the game of cricket. And this is a kind of package. If you hate English and cricket, you hate Jawaharlal Nehru too, because Nehru represents those two. And when the Queen visited India in 1960 or 61, <coughs> Loya organized an Angrezi Hatao campaign at, to coincide with the Queen's visit. And fortunately, he failed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here speaking to you. But the next year, Pakistan toured <coughs> India to play a cricket match. And Loya started a countrywide campaign against cricket. He said, it's a colonial game. It's a mix of slavish towards the West. It does not even cultivate uh, physical uh, strength in the way in which athletics and bodybuilding and gymnastics do. Uh, it uh, neglects uh, 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 traditional sports like Koko and Kabaddi. It's a sign of kind of neocolonialism and so on. And while Pakistan was playing India at the Brabant Stadium, <coughs> Loya held a press conference in an Irani cafe right opposite the Brabant Stadium. And Loya was always colorful copy. So there were journalists who came to listen to him. And he made a spiel about Nehru, the English language, the game of cricket, and so on and so forth, and why we needed in the next election, due in 1962, if you kicked out Nehru, you simultaneously kicked out the English language and the game of cricket, and you recovered the best in traditional Indian culture, history, politics, sport, and so on. So after he made this uh, speech, and the journalists had departed to file their copy, and this story was told to me by a man who was there, Loya's associate who was there. Loya went across to the nearest Panwala, the man selling cigarettes and betel nut. And at this stage, All India Radio, Bobby Taliyar Khan was, his voice was coming from the Brabant Stadium. And Loya goes to this man and says, uh, ask, orders a pan. He was a, he was a connoisseur of pan. The pan he ate, for those of you who know North Indian pan, the pan he ate was called Exo Beast Kanoji, which is a particular kind of confection. And he ordered the Exo Beast Kanoji. And I'll tell the story in Hindi first. He said, yaar ek Exo Beast Kanoji de dije. Kalkata Patame, which is the kind of dark, uh, bitter leaf, so that pan was made. And as it came over, he heard the sound of the radio in the background. And he said, Yeah, kya Hanif out ho gaya kya? <laughs> Is Hanif Muhammad still batting? He asked the panwala. So, um, the moral of this story is that inside every Indian cricket hater, there's a cricket lover waiting to come out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Ram. Um, number of questions, number of issues. Uh, let me begin. Just uh, what do you predict for the future of English cricket? <laughs> Just a little opener. Yeah. You know, uh, is the decline yeah. forever? You know, uh, some people, uh, not only Indians, speak of the English cricket team as the Commonwealth Eleven. <laughs> I'm being mischievous. I'm being mischievous. I think England will have all. I think what's happening is um, uh, that you're going through a period in cricket where every team wins at home and loses overseas. I mean, to think that England would lose, lose 3 0 in Dubai uh, was unprecedented. So I think uh, because there's so many tours being played all the time, uh, you don't, you, you, all you're good at is, you, you know, is playing at home. Uh, because you know, you know the food, you know the climate, you, you, know, you, you know the spectators, you know the press, and so on and so forth. The Indians always, you know, that's, that's why they do so well at home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, 
So if England can play all their games at home, that's, that's okay. Yeah. All right, all right, fine. Okay, well, we're going to open it up. We've got plenty of uh, microphones going around. There's a, I'll take two. There's a gentleman at the back and there's a gentleman in the middle. So we take two together. Around. I'll bring you up here. Sure. If you could put the um, mic into the gentleman in the middle. Sorry. Pass it along. Sir, if you could speak up. Yes, sir. In fact, my first question is, uh, uh, what about corruption in uh, cricket, about match fixing? You have left this point. And the second is a factual uh, this, uh, correction. Uh, Mr. Winston Churchill bill, which was outstanding, has been written off. <laughs> so it's a great news. This was done about a couple of years ago. Thank you. It, it was actually done just before this lecture in order to embarrass <laughs> Ram. I know. We know that, Ram. <laughs> uh, there's a gentleman here, please. Um, Ram, what is it about Indian history that can explain why so many Indian bowlers end up being spinners? End up being spinners. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you got a corruption and a spinner one there. Let's let's pick up on those two. Yeah. Uh, I started corruption. Uh, you know what the match fixing? I I talked about how I'm a notorious parochialist. I don't care if India wins or loses, right? When Dravid and Lakshman used to bat together, I used to say, "Come on, South Zone." That was you know, that, that's how that's how I, I I'm very eccentric in that sense. So, but the match fixing scandal broke. Uh, my first reaction was, it's all North Indians. <laughs> all right. <laughs> now, it so happened. It so happened that a little later, Azaruddin was caught in the net. So then I said, look, there's no Karnataka player. <laughs> I mean, Kumle, Dravid. But, of course, it was a serious issue. Uh, uh, and some of them, I mean, uh, I mean, there's one man who may have been involved in match fixing, who appears on television as an expert. And some cricketers, Anil Kumble among them, will not appear with him. So it was an issue that divided Indian cricket, as probably Pakistani cricket too. It's not as if every Pakistani cricket was a, cricketer was a match fixer. But there was a period when, uh, you know, Hansi Cronier in, in, in South Africa, where there was a sense in which, uh, uh, there are even now things coming out in England, uh, that some people, because a professional career is short, you know, they kind of, they're kind of on, on a, what's, what's it called, merry-go-round, they're going all over the place, they meet uh, people who can seduce them, bribe them, tempt them. But I think the more, greater worry in Indian cricket, I think match fixing is behind us. The greater worry in Indian cricket today is a corruption of a different kind. It is how the game is run. Uh, and I think I, the Indian cricket board stinks. Uh, shortly before he died, uh, the late and lamented Peter Roebuck, who was a very fine international cricket writer, uh, told me in Bangalore, he said, the two, two of the finest, two of the most powerful institutions in cricket today are Indian. One stinks, the other is outstanding. The one that stinks, I've already told you. Uh, the one that is outstanding is Click Info, which is a super cricket website, you know, and which has outstanding English writers, South African writers, English writers. And do you know that, you know, I can get a ticket to a press box, but the editor of Click Info cannot enter any press box run by the BCCI in India, because they're the only honest, brave guys who talk about corruption. So the way in which uh, elections are fixed, you know, um, for example, about seven or eight years ago, Sharad Pawar, uh, whose reputation I need not tell you any more about, uh, stood for the president of the cricket board and was defeated, which tells you something. Uh, so I think that added all levels. IPL, you know, the auction was fixed. For sure it was fixed. You know, who would, the first, first time who would get the teams. 
so i think that is really worrisome it's not so much you know so, I mean, azharuddin is a tragic figure you know what happened why ha- why it happened even hansi kroni was a tragic figure you know this young sx fast bowler is a tragic figure you know young 2020 you know this wonderful left arm bowler mohammad amir uh, 2022 someone says carlo do this and so, you know it's really the the guys who run the game it's uh, and it's the people who run the cricket ball in the ipl who who are really truly disgusting if it won't talk about corruption that's where corruption is spinners uh Well, India doesn't produce any good spinners anymore. <laughs> It's not <laughs> the answer. <laughs> Used to. I mean, the last. I suppose Anil Kumble was the last really great Indian spinner. Harbhajan was destroyed by IPL, which is you know, which is part of my. Well, partly to do with physique, physique. Partly, you know, you. Uh, it's uh, partly it's to do with our wickets, which are slow and dusty. Partly it's to do with exemplars. I mean, Kapil Dev once famously said when he was bowled fast, he was told in his first camp. By a well-known Indian coach, he said Indians only bowl spin; you can't bowl fast. Uh, but spin bowling is changing, and one of the things I, you know, I'm a, I'm a partisan of uh, uh, of bowlers, and uh, I wish Anil Kumble had been captain of the Indian Test team ten years ago. You know, it'd be nicer. But there's a bias against spin bowlers, um, as uh, Arthur Maley famously said when Len Hutton was knighted. He said. I hope next time it's a bowler. The last bowler to be knighted was Sir Francis Drake. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I think spin bowlers are, you know, part of the, as, as you also know, you know, you, that they're part of the poetry and magic of cricket. Uh, but you know, things have changed because wickets are covered, bats are so good, uh, protecting equipment. So I think it's, but I, I, it's, I don't think India produces uh, that many good spin bowlers anymore. I mean, India doesn't produce b- good bowlers anymore because in IPL you don't need to bowl to get wickets. That's right. Uh, the gentleman here has already had his hand up, and there's a lady back there. So we take the gentleman first, then the lady second. Yeah, please, sir. Oh, I came here for history, not for cricket. I'm a hockey player. I played for Sussex, so my question leave for the you room, is: leave the room. <laughs> uh, In a minute, I will. <laughs> um, what do you make of the stepmotherly treatment towards other sports uh, like hockey? And they have they are bound to play their Olympics in 143 days from today. Uh, how will that uh, affect India and cricket? <laughs> Let me just take the, let me take yeah. a second question. Uh, the lady, yeah, please. Um, a question about your book that was published, I think, about ten years ago, "Condor of a Foreign Field." Um, firstly, if the book were to be published ten years from now, would you write it? And uh, second, what about it would be different, if yeah. anything at all? Yeah, I mean, both great questions. On hockey, uh, you know, I think that. It's true that hockey is a wonderful sport. We were very good at it. This absolute stepmotherly treatment. There was an Indian hockey Premier League, but no rich Indians came forward to sponsor it. Uh, the great Aslam Sher Khan, who was a fantastic fullback, as you know, wrote a wrote a short article as to why Indians like cricket. Uh, he said, you know, hockey is about teamwork. It's about eleven people. Cricket is about getting eleven of us conspiring to get that bastard out. <laughs> you know, it's kind of it's like the Indian crime. You know, it's it kind of. I don't know. I don't know about that. But that may be a cynical way of seeing it. But there may be a less, uh, a more sociological way of seeing it, which is, as I said, it because it extends over five days. It's participatory. You know, it's part of how we communicate, we gossip, we chat, we joke. People's personalities are revealed in a cricket in a cricket field in a way in which they earn. So I think there is something more to it. It's not stepmother treatment is part of it. But Indians would have, would have been obsessed with cricket anyway. Uh, How would I? Well, uh, I'm actually writing an epilogue to that book. Since you ask, uh, what has changed is uh, two things have changed. Well, one thing has changed really. One is that, uh, and linked to uh, my answer to the question about corruption and uh, the cricket board, is the four categories, the four master categories by which I wrote my book, sociological categories, were race, 
caste, religion, and nation. And already as I was writing it, I realized that there's a fifth category, which is the market. So one needs to talk about the market in the way in which uh, it reflects and is refracted through the game of cricket. But I'll, you know, the title, A Corner of a Foreign Field, uh, much of it remains. You know, I was in um, Israel some months ago on non-cricketing business, and I picked up the Jerusalem Post, I think, it's the one English language, and I was reading it on, uh, uh, on the flight, and naturally I turned to the sports pages. And I didn't expect to find the scores of the Israeli Cricket League. And, uh, you know, so the best uh, fast bowler was Chapeker, which is a Maharashtrian name, because there's 65,000 Jews in Israel of Maharashtrian origin. The batsman was, you know, Mandlaker and so on. So it, it struck me that there is a corner of an Israeli field that shall be forever Indian. <laughs> He's been wanting to say that for 10 years. <laughs> I, I set you up there. A gentleman at the back, then a lady down here. We'll go around. Yeah, please, sir. Um, I have a particular interest in, in, in uh, Indian political history, and uh, there's no doubt that over the, last, of the course of the last 60 odd years, cricket has been used as a forum for peacemaking and stuff with our friends across the Wagga. Now, and naturally, when you have analysts, then you expect them to be neutral and you expect them to respect that uh, peacemaking uh, process. So, what do you have to say about analysts like Navjot Singh Sidhu and Harsh Bogle? who have seized every single opportunity to hurl abuse at Pakistani cricketers. Um, and in that context, we wouldn't even bother considering the Shiv Sena because yeah. th th their prime role is just to evoke hatred between the two countries anyway. Okay, thanks, good. And the lady back here. When uh, you're talking about interpreting Indian history through the lens of cricket, yeah. is that an entirely male perspective? I mean, like, uh, is there room for women in looking at Indian history through the lens of cricket? Because women all over the world, but especially in India, love cricket more than anything. Mm. So what yeah. are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I'll answer your question first. Uh, I said that six, there are 600 million Indian selectors. 300 million of them are women. <laughs> you know, they follow it with utter passion. And this has been going on for probably less so in the countryside, but working class women in the, city, in the cities and so on. So it's partly a male perspective, but not wholly. It probably till, 19, for, till the 1960s, um, I think those, who, I don't know much about this country, but till the 90s, even here there's a kind of very kind of uh, gender-inflected stereotype about British women making the sandwiches and the tea kind of stuff. But uh, certainly from the 1970s, Indian women, with television, Indian women follow cricket, are, are knowledgeable. Um, uh, some years ago, uh, I uh, had the great privilege of being uh, one of the judges for the first CK Naidu Sports Writing Prize. And the best sports writer in India, general, was a woman called Sharda Ugra. And the best sports writer in India, cricket, was a woman called Murli uh, 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 Kadamri. So, you know, so at, they are deeply, and some of them are incredibly not, and invested. So the, I think it, this, this, this is, I don't know what IPL will do. I mean, IPL may disgust the women back into you know, something else. But uh, to go back to your Pakistani question, you know, um, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know what uh, the two uh, commentators you mentioned have said or not said recently, uh, but it is, it, it, uh, it, uh, it's true that uh, <clears throat> the kind of poisonous partisanship 
uh, of certain sections of uh, the Indian sporting fraternity. I would say IPL. I think it was disgusting that the Indian cricketers, the, in, the Indian teams uh, did not bid for Pakistani cricketers. That worried me much more, you know, than, uh, than what may people would say. Uh, I think that might be changing at some level in terms of the ordinary fan. I think the, uh, you know, when the World Cup semi-final was played uh, between India and Pakistan, I was then in New York. And I was giving a talk on some his historical thing, and the guy asked me, the American chap asked me, I said, I hope Pakistan wins. And the next day, I got a few hate mails, but not as many as I got 10 years earlier, if I had said that. So I think at the level of cricketers, I mean, I talked about Javed uh, Miyadad, but I can't sleep. And tonight, maybe I'll drink too much and I won't be able to sleep. I think of Wasim Akram, you know. <laughs> Gary Sobers, Wasim Akram. Mm-hmm. Shane Warne comes later. All right. Now, so uh, that's, you know, so it's, it's, it's mixed. And I think uh, it's more the establishment. I think more the IPL uh, that uh, discriminate against Pakistani cricketers. I'm not sure about the, those commentators you mentioned. I mean, certainly, I, I don't know, but Navjot Singh Sudhu is even more of a loose cannon than me. So if he says something today, he might have forgotten it by tomorrow. Uh, uh, Harsha Bhogli, it surprised me if he was, uh, you know, so jingoistic. Mm. There's a gentleman down there, and there's a gentleman in the middle there. So I'd say the gentleman down there, then gentleman up here. Move around, please. Uh, would you say that uh, cricket is even more reflective of the country today with uh, the following things? You know, youngsters being inducted into the team as compared to what's being talked about in politics. Somebody old who's done something stalwart like Sachin. You know, you read the comments on some of the websites. People denigrate him. They leave, you know, no chance to do that. And with the fact that, you know, we win inside the country, so it would indicate that we should look inside and also that IPL, like in cricket, something internal is probably what might destroy the country the most. Uh, gentleman up there, just in the front there. Please, sir. Uh, recently, the power has shifted in cricket to India in the administration side. Do you think India will make good cricketing colonialists? Well, they already are. I mean, by excluding the Pakistanis, by trying to determine the, uh, the calendar, the structure of the game. You know, if you look at it, the British were the first cricketing colonialists. The Australians were the next. There was a period in the 80s and the 90s where the Australians decided the cricket calendar. So between November, post Kerry Packer, between November and February, you couldn't have matches anywhere else. You had to go to Australia. You had to get whipped by the Australians. The Australians had to pay for your blood. You played a test series, then you played a three-team, uh, you know, VB series, and now the Indians have taken over. So, you know, it is unhealthy, I mean, this kind of thing. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, they already are. To go back to your question of uh, uh, how cricket reflects uh, our, our society, of course it does. And it, the IPL is a very good example. You know, um, uh, in bad ways, uh, I, I agree with you about worshipping youth and having contempt for experienced people and so on. But if you look at the IPL, <coughs> the IPL had eight teams. Uh, then it was expanded to 10. Which of the teams that got, uh, uh, go, who got the extra teams? Pune, there was already one in Maharashtra. Kerala, there's never been a cricketing tradition in Kerala at all. Why? Because this is part of the urban middle class consuming India. I wrote a piece at that time simply pointing out that UP, Bihar, Orissa and Madhya Pradesh, which is in population terms half of India, did not have a single IPL team. And not only that, UP had been Ranji Trophy tam- champions two of the last four years. Madhya Pradesh has a great cricketing tradition. Why? Because they aren't fat cats and consumers there. So the way in which I, uh, Indian cricket truly democratized in the 60s, 70s, 80s, both in terms of who was playing, so people from small towns, who was watching. And now again it's becoming you know, uh, kind of narrow at the top. And that, uh, that's worrisome. Yeah. That it does reflect Indian society in that sense. 
Okay, is the lady down here go first and then gentleman up there in white, please? Hi, Ram. I just want to say I completely agree with you about the IPL. Um, Dravid said in a recent speech that one of the biggest problems facing cricket is empty stands, especially test cricket. What do you think this has to say about the future of cricket and test cricket? <laughs> Let me just tell you, gentlemen, here. Yes. Yeah, I, was, I was actually going to ask a very similar question of um, whether the IPL, the Big Bash League, and other T20 um, leagues and bonanzas around the world, is it going to destroy test cricket for good? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, an historian, not an astrologer. Uh, but I can give you my, my hopes, uh, my fears and my hopes. Kenny, it's, it's worrisome. Uh, you know, England people are watch, watch test cricket. Uh, as long as Tendulkar plays for India, people might watch uh, in some, or at least as long as he gets runs. Uh, but my hope is that IPL will fail as a business model. I mean, oh. already one of the promoters has got into trouble. And may others get into more trouble. Uh, so I think it, these are things that could happen. Already, because we are losing so much, uh, you know, maybe these guys are not heroes anymore. You know, and we continue to lose. The, the brand value of a cricketer in IPL is because he did well for India. Now, if India is doing really badly, then what happens? So, but you, both of you are right. I mean, it's those of uh, those who love Test cricket, those who love single malt Scotch whiskey, you know, it, it's a problem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a gentleman at the back and there's a gentleman up in the balcony. Sir, over there. Yeah. How do you think the fan following after Tendulkar? Like already uh, there have been series Tendulkar doesn't play. There have been less crowds in India in the England 5-0 series. There will huge talk about it. And even like I think the Mavs people just watch Tendulkar is out. People switch out television. It happens as if now. So what do you think of all that? Tendulkar question. And the gentleman up there? Yes. Um, my question was about uh, history or other uh, subject. Um, so the British were very successful in exporting opium from India to China. Why were they not so successful in exporting cricket from uh, <laughs> India to China? Uh, and, I'm uh, not going to answer that question. Um, and uh, I, a no, quick no, no. follow-up. So how do you explain a Chinaman to the Chinese? Right, so I'll, uh, I'll leave that one to you, Ram. I think uh, you're better on imperialism than I am. Well, I there think uh, we'll have to ask Professor Ari Westart, the historian of China, to see how much cricket he's watching in China. He's a Norwegian. He won't understand <laughs> exactly. cricket. You know, I mean, he understands everything else, but not cricket. That's right. Uh, Tendulkar, you know, I hope that uh, Tendulkar stops in 99 centuries. Like Bradman, I mean, someone should be fallible, right? Bradman's average was 99. So it's, you know, it's, it's getting a bit, I mean, when to retire, you know, it's, it's something, uh, you know, Anil Kumble uh, retired at the right time. When to retire is a decision many sports people face and they don't, don't, don't normally, and Tendulkar may have just, he should have retired after the World Cup. You know, that, that would have been a superb. I don't know, I mean, I suppose if the Indian team does well, I mean, it's maybe cyclical. I mean, I remember a time uh, when I was younger, the India also used to lose 5 nil, 5 nil, 5 nil, right? Then we slowly started winning. We started winning partly because of the geographical democratization of the game that, you know, in Karnataka, Andhra, and so on, people started playing. Maybe something will happen. It's not very promising because of the sheer greed of uh, those who run Indian cricket. You know, it's that they reflect on the long term. It's, 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 you know, it's hard to say. Uh, but it's possible. Maybe ho hockey will come up. You know, this history is about episodes and cycles. And they may be in a moment from the time that the Parsis beat G.F. Vernon's team in 1890 to uh, the time we won the World Cup last year. In 120 years, perhaps cricket will dominate and something else should take its place. Fine. 
Why don't the Chinese play cricket? <laughs> well, I've got no idea, have you? It's not an Olympic sport. So how will they get the gold medals? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that good enough? I think that's a pretty damn good answer, though. Yeah. <laughs> I got somebody else. Where were you? There's somebody else. There's a gentleman over here and a gentleman over there. And then I'll bring in some, some women as well. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks so much for your talk. Really insightful uh, information you shared. But I had two questions for you. Uh, one was, do you think there are any other sports um, that affected India's history? Um, you spoke a lot about hockey and kabaddi and stuff. But do you think that they really affected India's history? And um, you spoke about how Gandhiji's, um, Gandhiji's input affected um, Indian history. Do you think uh, today's Gandhiji figure, Anna Azari, can affect India's cricket and um, the future in any way? Okay, and there was a gentleman over there, Anya, please. Uh, you, you said that one of the reasons... Please speak into the mic. Thank you. One of the reasons for the popularity of cricket in India is, uh, you said, the slow pace of the game with uh, long breaks and interruptions uh, suits the Indian character and culture. Uh, there's probably some truth in that, because in my youth I used to sit in jam-packed stadiums for five days watching test cricket. But looking at cricket on TV now, you see empty stadiums for the test matches and the stadiums are jam-packed for the 2020 games. Now, does that indicate a shift in the Indian character and culture to a more fast pace in the modern Indian uh, character? Do you think that's so? No, I'll, uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. I mean, if you look at the, uh, uh, there's a wonderful book written on how cricket, baseball conquered cricket in the United States. And part of it is nationalism, because the Americans don't like playing anybody else's sport. <laughs> uh, but part of it is to do with the industrialization of America in the 19th century and how 90 minutes was what you could fit in. Some of that is happening. But because Indians have played cricket for so long, what, what the IPL reflects is only a class divide. You know, a certain kind of uh, middle class Indian is okay with IPL. But the rest will watch neither IPL nor, nor test cricket. Maybe they'll watch, you know, politics or something else. So there's something interesting going on which you can't quite unravel. Or your question about history. You know, there's a... There's a great history to be written about football in Calcutta, a social history. It's parallel to the pentangular. So you had, uh, you know, uh, before uh, one of the major moments in Bengali nationalism, <coughs> major moments in Bengali nationalism, uh, I'm getting old so I hope I get the date right, I think it's 1911, when Mohan Bagan beats the East York's regiment to become the first Indian team to win the Indian Football Association Shield. And that was like memorialized in poetry and myth and song in Bengal, including the fact that 10 out of 11 of that Mohan Bagan team played barefoot, like Ranji and his Christian, non-Christian strokes, right? Uh, there was a left back, I don't know why left back, a left back needed, uh, you know, boots. Uh, so, and then it goes on. And if you look at the ways in which football is interwoven with Bengali nationalism. So you have Mohan Bagan, which is the first great team which is the team of the Calcutta gentry. Then you have East Bengal, which is the team of the East Bengal kind of plebeian countryside, you know, sort of. And then you have a Muslim team called Mohammedan Sporting, and which at the time when the movement for partition is gathering ground, win six out of seven uh, Calcutta leagues. And they even songs, I mean, there's a famous song <coughs> written by a Muslim uh, uh, composer called League Bijoya Mohammedan Sporting, the team that always wins the league. So there's a great history, and then it goes on, and then of course, uh, India gets partitioned, 
then the refugees come in from East Bengal, uh, the Hindu refugees. They support their team. And it, the plebeian refugees of East Bengal dethrone Mohan Bagan. So East Bengal becomes a, a really Im the most important club in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then in 1982, the first soccer World Cup is shown live in Calcutta. And you know how lousy your players are. So you don't watch them anymore. And the Calcutta League disappears. So there's a great history to be written, a hundred year history to be written, a social history which illuminates the history of Bengal. And we're talking about, you know, what is it, 300 million people. I mean, it's like a social history of five times the size, or three, four times the size of this country through the medium of football. And I think it, it, it's waiting to be told. And uh, I hope someone, you know, uh, someone who, with the necessary skills, you'll have to know Bengali and so on, uh, tells it. On your other question, Anna Hazare is possibly the second most famous Maharashtrian living today. And maybe he should tell the most famous Maharashtrian uh, Sachin Tendulkar to retire. <laughs> and maybe they can mutually tell each other to retire, which would be very good. Very good well, well, well. <laughs> I think, uh, who's got the microphone at the moment? I lost you. There you are. So this will have to be the very last question, I think, because we're coming up to time. So you have the privilege of the last question. Thank you. Uh, one of the most passionate topics that's discussed of, uh, between cricket fans is India versus Pakistan. Uh, as you are a cricket fan as well as a historian, I think this question would apply best uh, to you. Some, some people say that the Indian team and the Pakistani team, if they were combined, they would be one of the most uh, dominating teams of, of the recent years. Uh, whereas some people say that India versus Pakistan has given us so much exciting cricket uh, that you know, that's one of the rivalries which is most exciting. So uh, as a cricket fan and as a historian, what, do you think that the partition was a good idea or not? Wow. I'll answer that question indirectly. I'll answer that question indirectly. Was that a question? I think, you know, one of the problems, I mean, one of the fantasy games that we all play is an all-time India-Pakistan 11. The problem with that game is that there are 11 members of a, in, of a cricket team and 11 is not divisible by two. All right. So it, wow, yeah. it, it, it creates a further partitions. But I, have a, I wrote a piece which I'm proud of and which should be revived. This is when Samuel, since we are talking the LSE and next to a distinguished professor of international relations and so on, you remember Samuel Huntington's clash of civilization thesis and the whole sparks that flew after that. I wrote a piece shortly after that. I said I proposed an annual clash of civilizations cricket match. <laughs> and which would posit the West, of course, which is, you know, versus a combined Pakistan, Indian and Sri Lankan team. You know, and of course the West Indies would, because of whatever, would go into, I'd be happy for them to go to the West, South Africans of course, and that would be really, I mean, just think of it, I mean, you think of, you have you know, uh, a once famous tournament, I don't know if it's watched anymore, between the champion football team of Latin America and the champion football team of uh, uh, Europe, you know, so that, so, partition, I mean, I, I, well, I think there should be much more, I, I, I think a clash of civilizations match uh, in which, uh, you know, uh, when I proposed it, you'd have Murli Dharan bowling to, uh, uh, Ricky Ponting uh, with Azuruddin fielding at first slip and Wasim Akram bowling from the other end. You just think. And Shane Warne bowling to, you know, Inzaman and Sachin batting against Shane Warne and Magra. I mean, that's, that's what, that's the, that's the stuff for fantasy and dreams. <laughs> well, I have to uh, draw it to, to a conclusion, but I will end on a little imperialism, which I know you admire so much, that at the Battle of Alma in the Crimean War, Sir John Astley of the Scots Guards watched as a Russian cannonball cut through his company. And he recalled in his memoirs that he had shouted to one of his men, who was our best wicketkeeper to catch it? And the man replied, no, sir, 
It had a bit too much pace on it. <laughs> so with that particular odd and peculiar conclusion, I was also going to read you a poem which is called Play Up, Play Up and Play the Game. But it goes on for a very long time. But it connects cricket to the Sudan in 1885. And I'm sure you know that poem. I think you've connected all the dots tonight. You've even informed people who don't even know what cricket is, such as my good mate Arnie Wester. I'll, I'll be taking you into the ideas corridor soon, Arnie, and um, I'll show you what an off-spin is. I, like, like him, I'm completely unfit. This is one of the reasons I used to play cricket. Um, you've denounced, you've announced, you've said so many things tonight. We clearly know that you love the Indian PL. You're not, you're not so keen on baseball and you hate 2020. You've got everything right. What we need to do after this lecture, however, Ram, is to do one thing. We're going to take you and give you a decent single malt whiskey. <laughs> so you will have real credibility when you make that joke again. Could we say thank you to Ram? <laughs>